0: chapter 16 of pioneers of france in the new world part 2 champlain and his associates this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org pioneers of france in the new world by francis parkman part 2 samuel champlain and his associates chapter 16 the english at quebec 1628 1629 The first care of the new company was to succour Quebec, whose inmates were on the verge of starvation. Four armed vessels, with a fleet of transports commanded by Roquemont, one of the associates, sailed from Dieppe with colonists and supplies in April 1628, but nearly at the same time another squadron, destined also for Quebec, was sailing from an English port. War had at length broken out in France. The Huguenot revolt had come to a head. Rochelle was in arms against the king, and Richelieu, with his royal ward, was beleaguering it with the whole strength of the kingdom. Charles I of England, urged by the heated passions of Buckingham, had declared himself for the rebels, and sent a fleet to their aid. At home, Charles detested the followers of Calvin as dangerous to his own authority. Abroad, he befriended them as dangerous to the authority of a rival. In France, Richelieu crushed Protestantism as a curb to the house of Bourbon. In Germany, he nursed and strengthened it as a curb to the House of Austria. The attempts of Sir William Alexander to colonize Acadia had of late turned attention in England towards the New World, and on the breaking out of the war an expedition was set on foot, under the auspices of that singular personage, to seize on the French possessions in North America. It was a private enterprise, undertaken by London merchants, prominent amongst whom was Gervase Kirk, an Englishman of Derbyshire, who had long lived at Dieppe, and had there married a Frenchwoman. Gervaise Kirk and his associates fitted out three small armed ships, commanded respectively by his sons David, Louis, and Thomas. Letters of marque were obtained from the king, and the adventurers were authorized to drive out the French from Acadia and Canada. Many Huguenot refugees were among the crews. Having been expelled from New France's settlers, the persecuted sect were returning as enemies. One Captain Michel, who had been in the service of the Cairns, a furious Calvinist, is said to have instigated the attempt, acting, it is affirmed, under the influence of one of his former employers. Meanwhile the famished tenants of Quebec were eagerly awaiting the expected succor. Daily they gazed beyond Point Lévy and along the channel of Orléans, in the vain hope of seeing the approaching sails. At length, on the ninth of July, two men, worn with struggling through forests and over torrents, crossed the St. Charles and mounted the rock, They were from Cape Torment, where Champlain had some time before established an outpost, and they brought news that, according to the report of Indians, six large vessels lay in the harbour of Tadoussac. The friar Le Caron was at Quebec, and, with a brother Recollet, he went in a canoe to gain further intelligence. As missionary scouts were paddling along the borders of the island of Orléans, they met two canoes advancing in hot haste, manned by Indians, who with shouts and gestures warned them to turn back. The friars, however, waited till the canoes came up, when they saw a man lying disabled at the bottom of one of them, his moustaches burnt by the flash of the musket which had wounded him. He proved to be Fouché, who commanded at Cape Torment. On that morning, such was the story of the fugitives, twenty men had landed at that post from a small fishing-vessel. Being to all appearance French, they were hospitably received, but no sooner had they entered the houses than they began to pillage and burn all before them, killing the cattle, "'wounding the commandant, and making several prisoners. "'The character of the fleet at Tadoussac was now sufficiently clear. "'Québec was incapable of defence. "'Only fifty pounds of gunpowder were left in the magazine, "'and the fort, owing to the neglect and ill-will of the Cairns, "'was so wretchedly constructed that a few days before two towers of the main building had fallen. "'Champlain, however, assigned to each man his post, and waited the result.' On the next afternoon a boat was seen issuing from behind the point of Orléans, and hovering hesitatingly about the mouth of the St. Charles. On being challenged, the men on board proved to be Basque fishermen, lately captured by the English, and now sent by Kirk unwilling messengers to Champlain. Climbing the steep pathway to the fort, they delivered their letter, a summons, couched in terms of great courtesy to surrender Quebec. There was no hope but in courage. A bold front must supply the lack of batteries and ramparts, and Champlain dismissed the Basques with a reply, in which, with equal courtesy, he expressed his determination to hold his position to the last. All now stood on the watch, hourly expecting the enemy, when instead of the hostile squadron, a small boat crept into sight, and one dead dame, with ten Frenchmen, landed at the storehouses. He brought stirring news. The French commander, Roquemont, had dispatched him to tell Champlain that the ships of the hundred associates were ascending the St. Lawrence, with reinforcements and supplies of all kinds. But on his way Dedame had seen an ominous sight, the English squadron standing under full sail out of Tadoussac, and steering downwards as if to intercept the advancing succor. He had only escaped them by dragging his boat up the beach and hiding it, and scarcely were they out of sight when the booming of cannon told him that the fight was begun." Racked with suspense, the starving tenants of Quebec waited the result, but they waited in vain. No white sail moved athwart the green solitude of Orléans. Neither friend nor foe appeared, and it was not till long afterward that Indians brought them the tidings that Roquemont's crowded transports had been overpowered, and all the supplies destined to relieve their miseries sunk in the St. Lawrence or seized by the victorious English. Kirk, however, deceived by the bold attitude of Champlain, had been too discreet to attack Quebec and after his victory employed himself in cruising for French fishing-vessels along the borders of the Gulf. Meanwhile, the suffering at Quebec increased daily. Somewhat less than a hundred men, women, and children were cooped up in the fort, subsisting on a meagre pittance of peas and Indian corn. The garden of the Hébertes, the only thrifty settlers, was ransacked for every root or seed that could afford nutriment. Months wore on, And in the spring the distress had risen to such a pitch that Champlain had well nigh resolved to leave the women, children, and sick the little food that remained, and with the able bodied men invade the Iroquois, seize one of their villages, fortify himself in it, and sustain his followers on the buried stores of maize with which the strongholds of these provident savages were always furnished. Seven ounces of pounded peas were now the daily food of each, and at the end of May even this failed. Men, women, and children betook themselves to the woods, gathering acorns and grubbing up roots. Those of the plant called Solomon's Seal were most in request. Some joined the Hurons or the Algonquins. Some wandered toward the Abenakis of Maine. Some wandered towards the Abenakis of Maine. Some descended in a boat to Gaspé, trusting to meet a French fishing vessel. There was scarcely one who would not have hailed the English as deliverers. But the English had sailed home with their booty, and the season was so late that there was little prospect of their return. Forgotten alike by friends and foes, Quebec was on the verge of extinction. On the morning of the 19th of July, an Indian, renowned as a fisher of eels, who had built his hut on the St. Charles, hard by the new dwelling of the Jesuits, came, with his unusual imperturbability of visage, to Champlain. He had just discovered three ships sailing up the south channel of Orléans. Champlain was alone. All his followers were absent, fishing, or searching for roots. At about ten o'clock his servant appeared with four small bags of roots and the tidings that he had seen the three ships a league off, behind Point Levy. As man after man hastened in, Champlain ordered the starved and ragged band, sixteen in all, to their posts, whence with hungry eyes they watched the English vessels anchoring in the basin below, and a boat with a white flag moving towards the shore a young officer landed with a summons to surrender. The terms of capitulation were at length settled. The French were to be conveyed to their own country, and each soldier was allowed to take with him his clothes, and in addition a coat of beaver-skin. On this some murmuring arose, several of those who had gone to the Hurons having lately returned with peltry of no small value. Their complaints were vain, and on the 20th of July, amid the roar of cannon from the ships, Louis Kirk, the admiral's brother, landed at the head of his soldiers, and planted the cross of St. George, where the followers of Wolfe again planted it a hundred and thirty years later. After inspecting the worthless fort, he repaired to the houses of the Recollets and Jesuits on the St. Charles. He treated the former with a great courtesy, but displayed against the latter a violent aversion, expressing his regret that he could not have begun his operations by battering their house about their ears. The inhabitants had no cause to complain of him, He urged the widow and family of the settler Herbert, the patriarch, as he has been styled, of New France, to remain and enjoy the fruits of their industry under English alliance, and as beggary in France was the alternative, his offer was accepted. Champlain, bereft of his command, grew restless, and begged to be sent to Tadoussac, where the admiral, David Kirk, lay with his main squadron, having sent his brothers Louis and Thomas to seize Quebec. Accordingly, Champlain, with the Jesuits, embarking with Thomas Kirk, descended the river. Off Mall Bay a strange sail was seen. As she approached she proved to be a French ship. In fact, she was on her way to Quebec with supplies, which, if earlier sent, would have saved the place. She had passed the Admiral's squadron in a fog, but here her good fortune ceased. Thomas Kirk bore down on her, and the cannonade began. The fight was hot and doubtful, but at length the French struck, and Kirk sailed into Tadesac with his prize. Here lay his brother, the admiral, with five ships. The admiral's two voyages to Canada were private ventures, and though he had captured nineteen fishing vessels, besides Roquemont's eighteen transports and other prizes, the result had not answered his hopes. His mood, therefore, was far from benign, especially as he feared that, owing to the declaration of peace, he would be forced to disgorge a part of his booty, yet accepting the jesuits he treated his captives with courtesy and often amused himself with shooting-larks on shore in company with champlain the huguenots however of whom there were many in his ships showed an exceeding bitterness against the catholics chief among them was michel who had instigated and conducted the enterprise the merchant-admiral being but an indifferent seaman michel whose skill was great held a high command and the title of rear-admiral he was a man of a sensitive temperament easily piqued on the point of honour. His morbid and irritable nerves were wrought to the pitch of frenzy by the reproaches of treachery and perfidy with which the French prisoners assailed him, while, on the other hand, he was in a state of continual rage at the fancy neglect and contumity of his English associates. He raved against Kirk, who, as he declared, treated him with an insupportable arrogance. I have left my country, he exclaimed, for the service of foreigners, and they give me nothing but ingratitude and scorn." His fevered mind, acting on his diseased body, often excited him to transports of fury, in which he cursed indiscriminately the people of St. Malo, against whom he had a grudge, and the Jesuits whom he detested. On one occasion Kirk was conversing with some of the latter. "'Gentlemen,' he said, "'your business in Canada was to enjoy what belonged to Monsieur de Caine, whom you dispossessed.' "'Pardon me, sir,' answered Brebeuf we came purely for the glory of God, and exposed ourselves to every kind of danger to convert the Indians. Here, Michel broke in. I, I convert the Indians. You mean convert the beaver. That is false, retorted Brebeuf. Michel raised his fist, exclaiming, But for the respect I owe the general, I would strike you for giving me the lie. Brebeuf, a man of powerful frame and vehement passions, nevertheless regained his practiced self-command, and replied, you must excuse me. I did not mean to give you the lie. I should be very sorry to do so. The words I used are those we use in the school when a doubtful question is advanced, and they mean no offense. Therefore, I ask you to pardon me. Despite the apology, Michel's frenzied brain harped the presumed insult, and he raved about it without ceasing. Bon Dieu! said Champlain, you swear well for a reformer. I know it, returned Michel. I should be content if I had but struck that Jesuit who gave me the lie before my general. At length one of his transports of rage ended in a lethargy from which he never awoke. His funeral was conducted with pomp suited to his rank, and amid discharges of cannon whose dreary roar was echoed from the yawning gulf of the Saguenay, his body was borne to its rest under the rocks of Tadoussac. Good Catholics and good Frenchmen saw in his faith the immediate finger of Providence. "'I do not doubt that his soul is in perdition,' remarked Champlain, who, however, had endeavoured to befriend the unfortunate man during the excess of his frenzy. Having finished their carousings, which were profuse, and their trade with the Indians, which was not lucrative, the English steered down the St. Lawrence. Kirk feared greatly a meeting with Rosalie, a naval officer of distinction, who was to have sailed from France with a strong force to succour Quebec.' but peace having been proclaimed the expedition had been limited to two ships under captain daniel thus kirk wilfully ignoring the treaty of peace thus kirk wilfully ignoring the treaty of peace was left to pursue his depredations unmolested daniel however thought too weak to cope with him achieved a signal exploit on the island of cape breton near the site of louisburg he found an english fort built two months before under the auspices doubtless of sir william alexander Daniel, regarding it as a bold encroachment on French territory, stormed it at the head of his pikemen, entered sword in hand, and took it with all its defenders. Meanwhile Kirk, with his prisoners, was crossing the Atlantic. His squadron at length reached Plymouth, whence Champlain set out for London. Here he had an interview with the French ambassador, who at his instance gained from the king a promise that in pursuance of the terms of the treaty concluded the previous April, new France should be restored to the French crown. It long remained a mystery why Charles consented to a stipulation which pledged him to resign so important a conquest. The mystery is explained by the recent discovery of a letter from the king to Sir Isaac Wake, his ambassador at Paris. The promised dowry of Queen Henrietta Maria, amounting to eight hundred thousand crowns, had been but half paid by the French government, and Charles, then at issue with his parliament, and in desperate need of money, instructs his ambassador that, When he receives the balance due, and not before, he is to give up to the French both Quebec and Port Royal, which had also been captured by Kirk. The letter was accompanied by solemn instruments under our hand and seal, to make good the transfer on fulfillment of the condition. It was for a sum equal to about two hundred and forty thousand dollars that Charles entailed on Great Britain and her colonies a century of bloody wars. The Kirks and their associates, who had made the conquest at their own cost, under the royal authority, were never reimbursed, though David Kirk received the honour of knighthood, which cost the king nothing. End of chapter 16